I imagine this morning that I am standing before a number of people who have spent some hours this month watching basketball on television. Of course, uh, this is the month for March Madness. Um, uh, We're down to the last four teams. Uh, Some of your brackets have been destroyed. Uh, Next weekend, the contest will be over. There will be a new national champion. Uh, And I confess, (laughs) I haven't seen any of the games And frankly, I don't really have a whole lot of interest in it. I understand when I first came to Grace, they told me that they used to schedule the deacons meetings around the games uh, in March. Uh, We don't do that anymore. Uh, One thing that I bet that you will hear if you're watching those games, you will see sportscasters and commentators in broadcast booths talking about the role of referees during the game. It happens in every high-stakes uh, sporting event. Sportscasters talk and debate about the role that the refereeing played in the game. It, it's crucial. Those refs, those umpires, have a very important job. What they do can make a difference in who wins the game. Uh, a missed call at just the right moment can totally change what happens on the court. Uh, now, I haven't seen any of the games. I told you I don't uh, have much interest in, in watching. And to uh, further confirm my nerd status, um, I was in the pep band in college. I went to almost all of the college basketball games when I was at Cedarville. And uh, one year, our, uh, the pep band director at Cedarville told us that uh, when he first started, he taught the band how to play three blind mice on their instruments. And whenever the refs would make a bad call, in his opinion, on the court, the band would strike up the get song, Three Blind Mice. Um, <laughs> he stopped doing that. After a few years, he decided that um, uh, uh, it was not in keeping with a, the reputation of a Christian college to be mocking the referees like that. So he stopped. That and the technical foul that he received convinced him that it was not the right thing to do. I was in the pep band. I, every time I conduct a wedding, I offer to play Eye of the Tiger on the baritone for the wedding march, and no bride has ever taken me up on that offer. I think it's because they think I don't know how to play it, but trust me, I do. Pine praise. Here we go. Okay. Um, <laughs> Matt Woodley is a pastor in Illinois. He once uh, watched a soccer game between a team of Costa Ricans, uh, Costa Rican teenagers, and an American uh, team. Uh, Woodley and his family were very interested in soccer, and they had helped bring this team from Costa Rica up to the United States, and they participated in a tournament. Uh, and the Costa Ricans, they just were highly, highly skilled and were, were easily moving up uh, the, the, the ladder uh, to the championship game. And the championship game came, and and Matt Woodley says, I was sitting there in the stands, and it was obvious as soon as the game started that the Costa Ricans were uh, were far superior in their skills against the American team. But the American teenagers had two advantages. They were big, and they were mean. Uh, And he said that, uh, he stood there and he watched, and, and the refs missed every single cheap shot and ignored every single foul out there on the the field. Uh, The Costa Ricans lost 2-1, to and and Woodley wrote, this is what he said, 
I had to restrain myself from yelling at the inept officials. I just wanted them to notice the injustices, intervene like they're supposed to, and make a few calls. Instead, they didn't do their jobs, and the game wasn't played fairly. And listen, he continues this way. Sometimes people feel that way about God and the way God officiates the world. We all know that there are big problems, world hunger, a global economic crisis, mistreatment of the poor, political oppression, and worldwide sex trafficking. Then there are also more personal problems, a friend's addiction, a marital crisis, a church split, friends who despise each other. And at times we feel like crying out, why doesn't God intervene? Why doesn't God make a few calls and keep the game fair? Why does God let the bullies of life win? Everyone asks questions like that. You've asked questions like that, and I have. Uh, I ask questions like that when I see unwanted children. Why is it? It just seems like there's, there's 19-year-old unwed women around there out in the world who sleep around and they get pregnant regularly. They already have four at home. They've had three abortions and and these women just don't care and they can get pregnant like that. And there's people that I know who are married and have happy homes and stable homes and desperately want children and can't get pregnant. That just doesn't seem right to me. Uh, Maybe you ask questions like that when you see your brother-in-law He's always been rotten. Um, He drinks too much. You're pretty sure he hit your sister when uh, she was alive. He ignored his kids. He never kept a job. And he's still alive at 87, smoking three packs a day. And your husband, who was a good man, who loved you, and was a faithful follower of Christ, died 30 years ago. It just doesn't seem right. How's that good officiating of the world? Or... uh, What about the last set of promotions at work at your company? Did did the most qualified person really get the job or was it just the person who was most skilled at looking skilled who got the promotion? The Bible doesn't ignore questions like that, questions about God's officiating, about the fairness of the universe. And this morning, I want to direct your attention to one of those places in the Bible where it speaks to this issue. Take your scriptures, if you would please, and turn to Malachi chapter 2. Malachi chapter 2 is where I'd like to direct your attention this morning. Uh, as you recall, Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. The easiest way to find Malachi is to find one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, and go left. It's right before Matthew there in your Bibles. Uh, I'd love to hear the sound of your Bibles opening. If you don't have one, take one from the pew ahead of you. If you don't have a Bible at all, you can take that as your gift from us this morning when you leave. And if you want a better quality one, you can look at the lost and found. There's probably one there. Um, Malachi chapter 2. It has been several weeks. (laughs) That'll teach you to lose your Bible at church. It'll be gone, all right? That's just saying. Uh, It's been several weeks since we've been together in the book of Malachi, so can I remind you of a few of the things uh, that are going on? Last book in the Old Testament, so everything you know about what's happened in the Old Testament so far has already in the past. Uh, The recipients of this letter are the Jews, the Israelites, descendants of Abraham. And the story of the Bible really begins in Genesis chapter 12, where God promises Abraham that he would have uh, stars, uh, descendants as numerous as the stars, 
and that he'd have a land where he could live, where his family, his descendants would live, and that he would bless them. God says to Abraham, I'm going to prosper your descendants. I'm going to protect them. I'll be with them. I'll be their God, and they'll be mine. That great promise launches the story of the Old Testament, and all the things that happen that you can think of are God's dealing with his people. He rescued them from slavery in Egypt through Moses, and he provided judges who led them, Barak and Gideon and Samson, and he provided kings like Saul and David, and they experienced the golden period of Israel under Solomon, where the scripture says that Solomon made silver and gold as plentiful as the rocks on the street. And these people have also experienced their uh, uh, great times of testing and difficulty as they disobeyed God and experienced His discipline. They've been exiled from their land and they have returned under God by the time we get to Malachi. This is astounding that this would have happened. Nowhere in the history of the world has an exiled people returned to their nation, returned to their land. When I was in high school, or actually in junior high, we studied New York State history. and We talked about the Iroquois Indians and how the Iroquois had a confederacy that spread across New York State. I don't expect the Iroquois to ever again uh, regain ascendancy in New York. I don't expect that that's ever going to happen. It just wouldn't. But in the Bible, it happened. God's people, through His power, were brought back to their land. And they've come back and, 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 and they look around and, and they see all the promises of Abraham and they remember all the things that God did in the past and they're really not experiencing life that well. Things aren't going too well for them. They're still under the thumb of a foreign nation. They're poor. They're struggling. They're suffering. And by the time we get to Malachi, they have decided if God doesn't care about us, we don't really care about Him. And Malachi is, is a hard book. It's a sharp book, as you'll recall. Um, it, it's meant to cut away the calluses that have developed on the hearts of these people. Or you might also say that Malachi is a loud book meant to unplug the ears of people who have turned themselves away from God. And, and so far in Malachi, God has taken them to task for doubting His love and for being sloppy with their worship and for being careless in their teaching of God's Word and for breaking their marriage covenants. And now here we come to Malachi 2.17 where they're asking another serious question about God. Look at what the Scripture says. You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or, you say this, where is the God of justice? God speaks. See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then, suddenly, the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in former years. So... I will come near to you for judgment. 
I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive aliens, the immigrants, of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. I want to think about this text with you this morning under three headings today. First, from verse 17, we're going to talk about a question we all ask. A question we all ask. Then in verses 1 through 4, we're going to talk about an answer we all know. An answer we all know. And third, finally from verse 4, a cha- uh, verse 5, excuse me, a challenge we all face. Let's begin in verse 17, a question that we all ask. These men and women are God's people living in God's place, but they're not experiencing God's blessings. They're supposed to be prospering, and they're wondering, why is life so hard for us? If we're in the right place and we have the right heritage, what's wrong? Um, you ask questions like that. We, we started thinking about some of those categories uh, uh, under which we might ask those questions about longevity. Why is it that, that bad people or at least people who are worse than you, live forever and happy and healthy lives? Why is it that, that somebody who doesn't work as hard at, at his job as you? Why does he get a promotion? Why does she get advanced and, and you, you don't? Why is somebody else um, uh, bearing children and, and you can't and you're not? Uh, sometimes uh, we read what we read in the Bible about God and His goodness and His justice and His righteousness just doesn't seem to match what we see experienced before us, what happens in people's lives. It, it seems like people who, who don't honor God and don't care about Him are prospering when people who love Him and seek Him out and honor Him are, are suffering. Uh, you wonder about that. Everybody has that question at times. Doesn't seem fair. Doesn't seem that God is officiating well. God has the wisdom. God has the power to make things fair, to make things right. But he, he's just, he's not doing it. Now, there are two things that you should know about asking questions like that, asking hard questions like that. The first one is that God is not afraid of hard questions. God is not afraid of hard questions. He's not afraid of you when you ask hard questions. Uh, you might be tempted to think that God is because verse 17 says, um, you've wearied me. We'll, we'll talk about that in, in a minute. Um, but that, that's not the case, that, that God's afraid or uh, hurt or offended by that. Good and godly people inside and outside of the Bible ask hard questions. Sometimes um, we give the impression subtly or people outside the church mock us for acting like or thinking that because we're church folk, we don't have problems, that we don't ask hard questions or we don't go through difficulty. You know that's not true. But sometimes we subtly give that impression or they think that about us. You know, Just because um, we're church people, um, we don't ever... A wonder about God's goodness. Or um, we imply that, that if you're a church person, it's not okay to ask if the Bible really is true and if Jesus really did rise from the dead. Good people, church people, don't ever face things like doubt or um, homosexual temptation 
or uh, live in fear. Sometimes we communicate that if you really loved God, if you really took the Bible seriously, if you really prayed enough, you wouldn't have questions to ask. You'd just be happy and everything would be fine with you and you'd be completely satisfied. That's not true, is it? We know that's not true. God's not afraid of questions and struggles and troubles. He's, he's not indiv- intimidated by them. See, the Bible stands up to scrutiny. We talk about hard issues. We talk about controversial things. We're not afraid of any of them. In fact, I doubt that you can really grow as a follower of Christ unless you ask hard questions. We spent a lot of time when I was growing up skiing. We used to ski at a little uh, ski slope not too far from my house. It's called Honey Hill. <laughs> Um, my dad taught my sisters and I, uh, my dad taught my sisters and me to ski as soon as we could walk. So I started skiing when I was two. My little skis are about this long. And, uh, I used to ski. By the time I was eight, I had six years of skiing experience and was okay at it. I was not very wise what I did with the skis, but I could use them at least. When you're eight years old, you don't, and you can ski, you don't have a lot of friends who, who can ski. So I watched. Uh, a lot of my friends learn how to ski in western New York. And one of the things that I observed about them is you can never grow in your skill if you stay on the bunny hill. You can only reach a certain amount, and if you want to get any better than that, you have to go somewhere else. You have to go where the, the hills are steeper, where the trails are longer, where the challenges are greater. That, that's the only way that you're going to improve as, as a skier. And asking hard questions is one of the ways that you'll come to know God better. To understand His wisdom, His power, His goodness. I've studied the Bible for a number of years. Not as long as some of you have. um, But for a while, and I've learned there are a lot of things that I don't know. I've discovered there are a lot of things I don't know. But what I have also found is that the Bible can be mined over and over and over and over again. And your hard questions will never take you to the bottom of the depths of God's supremacy. See, what you'll discover in in scaling the hills and the valleys of the deep questions that you'll ask is that, that God is bigger than any of the questions that you'll ask. That's why we ask hard questions, to find out how massive He is. Uh, here's an example of someone who found that out. I'm going to read a quote from a man by the name of William Stunts. William Stunts was a Harvard Law professor. He was a follower of Christ. He was uh, significantly influential in applying Christianity to his practice of the law. And he died last week uh, at the age of 52 from colon cancer. And William Stunts uh, wrote this uh, about his experience with cancer. He's talking about Joseph, Joseph in the Old Testament. Joseph's story foreshadows the central story of the Gospels. The worst day in human history was the day of Christ's crucifixion, which saw the worst possible punishment inflicted on the one who in all of history least deserved it. Two more sunrises and the sun rose. The best day in human history. The day God turned death itself against itself. And because he did so, each one of us has the opportunity to share in death's defeat. That is our God's trademark. Uh, down, down to go up. Life from death. 
Beauty from ugliness. The pattern is everywhere. That familiar pattern is also a great gift to those who suffer disease and loss. The loss may remain, but good will come from it. And the good will be larger than the suffering it redeems. Our pain is not empty. We do not suffer in vain. When life strikes hard blows, what we do has value because our God sees it. William Stumps wrote that because he asked hard questions. See, it's not asking questions that it is the problem. The problem in this text is with these people is how they asked. Um, I mentioned that that there are two things you should know about asking questions. The first one is um, God's not afraid of our questions. The, The second thing is God takes questions from people who are willing to listen. God takes questions from people who are willing to listen. Uh, these people were not willing to hear from God and they are just wearying Him. What wearies Him is not the fact that they're asking, it's, it's that they don't really want God to answer. All they want to do is accuse Him. They just want to deride God. They just want to dismiss God. They don't really want them to change. They don't want God to change them. They want to accuse God of being inept in running the universe. Uh, Verse 17 has some really serious challenges. It says, God is pleased with evildoers. That word pleased is the word that's used in the Bible to describe a bridegroom who sees his bride. God loves people who do evil. That's what they're saying. God's absent. There's no justice in this world. You're no good, God. God doesn't talk to people who just want to accuse him. In Mark chapter 11, some religious teachers came to Jesus and Jesus had emptied the temple and they came up to him and said, Jesus, we want to ask you a question. All right? They said, who gave you the right? Where do you get off throwing people out of the temple? I mean, do you really have the authority to do that? And Jesus said, I'll answer your question. You answer one of mine first. He said, John's baptism, was it from God or was it from human beings? That is, is John the Baptist really, was John the Baptist really a messenger from God or was he just a human prophet, a, a, a charlatan preacher? So the religious leaders thought about it for a while and they decided that if they answered from God, then Jesus would say, well, why didn't you listen to him? And they decided that if they said from human beings, that the crowd would kind of get mad because they liked John. So... Well, they decided that the best thing to do was they said to Jesus, well, um, <laughs> our considered opinion is that we don't know where John got his authority from. Jesus said, I don't talk to people like you. Actually, he said, neither will I tell you then where I get my authority from. All you want to do, Jesus is saying, is ask me a question so you can accuse me, so you can make me look bad, so you can try to make me look foolish in front of this crowd. I don't talk to people like that. God says in Malachi chapter 2, you are wearying me by just accusing me. God answers real people in real pain who have real questions, who are really open to the idea that God is bigger than their questions. But he will not be boxed in. So that's the first part of this passage. The Jews here are asking a question we all ask. They're not asking it well. But they're raising that issue of why life in this world seems so unfair. So let's move on to the second part of this passage here. We move to an answer we all know, an answer we all know. 
I read a study not too long ago of Sunday school teachers and uh, somebody did some very important research into Sunday school classes and what happens in Sunday school. And they determined that there were five top answers to questions that Sunday school teachers ask. If you were to compile all the te- questions that a Sunday school teacher asks his class her or her class, now, what are the answers that they're looking for? There's, there's five of them. You probably know the answer. Uh, the fifth one was obey your parents. Number four, read the Bible. Number three, go to church. Number two, pray. And the number one most frequent answer to any question asked in Sunday school is Jesus. Jesus. Right, Jesus. Uh, last month, a Sunday school teacher wanted to start her primary class in a little bit unique way, so she's plugging into the calendar a little bit, and she said, all right, boys and girls, I want you to think of someone that, that we know who, um, this time of year, peeks his head out of his hole, and, and depending on whether or not he sees his shadow, um, we can tell whether that there's going to be winter. Nobody answered the question. Nobody said anything. And, and finally, one little boy raised his hand, and he said, well... I think it sounds like a groundhog to me, but I know the answer has to be Jesus. (laughs) Always Jesus. Well, believe it or not, here the answer to the question that we all know is Jesus. That's what uh, uh, Malachi is writing about here. Look at verse 1 again here. See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. See, in response to their question about God's justice, Malachi points ahead to the coming of Christ. Christ is coming. Jesus is coming. Now, why does he do that? I think because we're at the point in biblical history where he is the answer. His coming is the next event. Some of you have been on long car trips before with little kids. Say you're driving to Florida. Long trip with little kids. After like two hours, you know the question, are we there yet? Okay, they'll ask the question. And you're so far from Florida, you don't even mention yet Florida. You, you say, no, we're not there yet. Here's a book to read. Here's a, a, a video to watch. Here's something to play with. Let's play the guessing game. Who wants to look for a license? Like you come up with all these things for the trip. But when you're in Georgia and you're about 30 miles away from that state line, You stop talking about the books and the videos and the license plate game and the guessing game. You say, we're almost there, just a little bit further. And Malachi, in Malachi 3, is saying, oh, just a little bit further. We're almost there. He's almost coming. Just wait, just a little bit more. Uh, See, their question takes on new significance in the light of the fact that the Messiah is coming. Now, we who live after the cross and the resurrection, for us, Jesus is the starting point for all of our questions. Um, uh, I want it to be increasingly true of us as a church that our starting point for all the questions that we face, regardless of what we're talking about, whether it be uh, marriage or money or how the church works or suffering, that we always, with all of those questions, start with the cross. We ask, how does the gospel speak to this issue? We want to be gospel men and women. Now, let's dig into the text a little bit, because I want to show you something very interesting in these verses. Verse 1 appears to mention four different people. Follow along as I read here, and we'll talk about who those four are. See, it says, I. Now, who's the I? The speaker is God Almighty. So there's person number one. 
I will send my messenger, okay? Person number two right there, my messenger, who will prepare the way before me. God again speaking. Then suddenly the Lord, here's a third person. This is a divine name for somebody else other than God Almighty. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant, number four. Now who are these people? Messenger of the covenant, I'll finish reading, whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. There's their speaker again. We have in these, these, this verse four different people. Um, who are they? Jesus in the New Testament tells us. Okay? The messenger, the first person who prepares the way for me, uh, by, by saying this, God is plugging into an image that the people would have known about. Um, whenever the king uh, or a very important person would arrive in a town, he would always be preceded by a messenger. And the messenger would go and announce, the king is coming, the king is coming, get ready for the king. Um, Isaiah and the Psalms use different images of him that, that this messenger would, would take out the ruts in the road so that the king's chariot wouldn't bounce too much and that he would straighten the path so that the king would be ready. Je- uh, Jesus tells us that this messenger is John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the messenger uh, according to Jesus. And we'll talk about him again in a few weeks when we get to chapter 4. God Almighty is the Father. Now, who is the Lord, though? This is very odd. We have God Almighty speaking of another divine person who will come to the temple. I think this is a foreshadowing or a slight taste in the Old Testament, again, of the triune nature of God. This is God the Father speaking of God the Son. The Trinity was not revealed completely in the Old Testament, but there are glimpses of it, and here is one of those places that this happens. So God the Father is saying, the messenger, John's coming, he'll prepare the way for the Lord, my son, Jesus, and the messenger of the covenant. Who is that? I think this is either another reference to John the Baptist, or it's a reference to Jesus himself. I think it's Jesus himself. Jesus is the messenger of the covenant. He's the one who came and brought the new covenant. He's the one who preached the covenant to his people. So that's what's happening. The answer is Jesus. And verses 2 through 4 tell us what Jesus is going to do. He's going to purify and wash the people. No one will be able to stand before him. That's what verse 2 says. No one's clean enough. But he's going to be like a refiner. A refiner would take precious metal, uh, a ring or a crown or an earring or something like that, and put it in a, a container and heat it up and melt that gold or that silver. And the impurities, if there were any in the gold or silver, would rise to the top and he'd scoop, the refiner would scoop them out. One commentator said the refiner finishes his work when he can look in the, the, the melting pot and see his own reflection. Uh, Now, a launderer launderer would also clean something, use this very uh, harsh soap, and then a launderer would take the clothes and beat them against a rock in order to get all of the dirt and gunk out of those clothes. He's going to come, Jesus is going to come and purify his people. He's going to start with the priests and the Levites, and eventually it's going to spread to all the people. When you look in this world and you see that it's broken, and you see everything that's not fair, and you see things that aren't right, Malachi says, Jesus is going to fix it. He's going to put everything right. He's going to make sure that no one escapes God's justice. In fact, 
this purification process has already started. We'll talk about that more in in just a minute. Verse 5 is actually where we come to to point 3, the third division of the text here. And it sets before us a challenge we all must face. A challenge we all must face. Look at verse 5 and you'll see something here that you don't expect. And the the people certainly didn't expect it either. Verse 5. So I will come near to you for judgment. I will come near to you for judgment. Wait a minute, God. This, this is not right. This can't be right. Something is not right here. See, this is God's people, and they're complaining about all the other evil people out there that God hasn't judged. God, you haven't done anything about all those evil people out there, and you're ignoring us good people. You've got to do something about them. And God says, oh, I will. I'm coming for you. Uh, see, the Bible is telling us something that will radically change how you think about how good people suffer, how you think about how all people suffer. This passage has the potential to change how you think about the conflicts in your life, how you think about people when they disappoint you, how you think about how you read the newspaper and see evil and good people prospering. This passage is crucial for how you do those things, how you think about those things, how you feel about those people. So the Bible is saying the problem is not with God. The problem is not with His lack of justice. The Bible is saying, I am the problem. See, I'm concerned with all the evil out there. This is what the, the people on Malachi's day, they want to know about all the evil out there. God says, I will take care of the evil. You know where the evil is that I'm going to take care of? It's right here. Uh, they were upset. Malachi says God is coming for you and he named specific sins that they have committed. Your sorcery, your adultery, your perjury, your uh, unfairness, your oppression, your deprivation of justice. All social sins have their, their, their root in a failure to fear God. Several years ago, the London Times, actually almost 100 years ago, the London Times once sent a questionnaire to um, several prominent people in Great Britain asking for their answer to the question, what's wrong with the world? Simple question, right? What's wrong with the world? G.K. Chesterton wrote back and said this, Dear Sir, I am yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. This is what Malachi is saying. Whenever you are tempted to complain about God or not giving you what you deserve or you wonder why other people are not getting what they deserve, you have lost sight of your real condition before God. This is a form of self-righteousness. You cannot look at other people's sins without thinking about your own, without remembering your own. If you look at the inequity in the world and, and your first thought or your primary thought is it's not fair, God is mismanaging the universe, you are proud, you are deceived, and you don't fear God. If you think about someone else's sins without thinking about your own, you're blind, is what Malachi is saying. If you think about their sins without thinking about yours, you will never be a gracious person. You will never be a truly loving person. You will never be able to be a forgiving person. You will, you will destroy the community that God intends for our congregation. You'll destroy the community that God intends for your small group. 
You've never heard anyone confess a sin that is out of the realm of possibility for you. And if, if you hear somebody confess sin and you think to yourself, I would never do that, you're deceived. You're blind. You are wearying the Lord. When you see this, when you understand this, is that how you think when you, when you watch uh, the news and you see people doing foolish things? Oh, look at that person. What kind of a moron makes those sort of choices? I would never do that. I would never, I'm not that bad a person. Or when you, when you have conflict with somebody and you think, can you imagine what they, you know what that person did to me? I don't deserve to be treated that way. Boy, if their friends knew what they had done, they wouldn't want to be friends with them anymore. But I know. Malachi says, God is coming for you. It is you. You must understand your condition before God. And when you do, when you see this, when you really understand your condition before God, you will know why the purifying work of Jesus is so vital. Why it matters so much. Malachi is describing primarily, I think, what Jesus will do in his second coming. But we can't think about this without understanding what Jesus did in his first coming. He had no impurities in himself, and yet he endured the fiery wrath of his Father. He had no dirt on him to be washed away, and yet he was beaten against the rock of God's justice. When Jesus died on the cross, he took my punishment. He bore the wrath I deserved because of my sin and because of my contribution to the injustice and the wickedness in the world. And Jesus died and he rose again and he offers life to all who receive it by faith. Life and forgiveness. So that's the only way. Understanding that is the only way that you can rightly think about other people and their sins through the cross. When the gospel sinks deeply into you, you will not stop thinking about justice, but you will think carefully about mercy when you think about justice. Mercy that you've received. So the only way that you can really helpfully talk to somebody else about their sin, and, and we have a responsibility to, don't we? Our church covenant says that we will admonish, uh, rebuke, and warn one another as occasion may require. The only way that you can do that is if you go to them with confidence that sin, your sin, and theirs can be forgiven through Christ. See, God's justice is perfect. Oh, it's absolutely perfect. It's not clear now, but its perfections will be manifest. It will be seen, God's perfections will be seen as they always are and always will be through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we sit in this room with our heads bowed and our eyes closed and we sit here as proud people, naturally self-righteous people. Father, it is so easy for me to think about other people's sins and what they've done wrong and what they deserve and what they should have happened to them. And I so often forget about my accountability and my responsibility to you. Father, will you forgive me for taking my forgiveness lightly? 
I want to be a gracious person. I I want this room to be filled with gracious people who don't hide sin, but rejoice in sin forgiven. Father, I want us to be a a congregation of of people who it's true that we obey your word, we confess our sins to one another, and and those who are spiritual help those who have fallen into uh, a sin, that we uh, set uh, wobbly ankles and that we repair uh, uh, sprained knees. I want us to to be a congregation that mends broken lives, But in order to do that, oh, would you grip us with the gospel that we would love the forgiveness that we have through Christ. Do that because it's just of you to do. It's it's fair. It's, It's right. Make us gospel men and women, we pray. Do that for your son's sake, we ask in his name. And together, God's people said, Amen.